Good morning. You all here? I just need one of those. Oh, thank you. Um, Mike and Kathy are out of town today. That's the only reason I'm sitting in their chair in their pew. (laughs) So... Uh, and I wanted to start with a question. Uh, according to Jesus, who was the, mace, the most fo- faithful man that he saw during his ministry? There's a remarkable passage in Luke 6 uh, addressing a centurion. A centurion is a, an officer of the Roman legion who commands a hundred, like century, and roughly equivalent to a cup company commander today, probably about a captain in our, in our system. Um, and this centurion had a beloved servant who was near death. And so the centurion hears about Jesus, and he sends the Jewish elders to seek Jesus' help with his ailing, dying servant. And the Jewish elders say, hey, this guy is for real. He even built us a synagogue. And so Jesus decides to go. And we'll pick it up there in, at verse 6, where it says, Now Jesus started on his way with him. When he was not far from the house, the centurion sent friends, saying to him, Lord, do not trouble yourself further, for I am not worthy for you to come under my roof. For this reason, I did not even consider myself worthy to come to you, but just say the word, and my servant will be healed. For I also am a man placed under authority with soldiers under me. And I say to this one, go, and he goes, and to another, come, and he comes. And I say to my servant, do this, and he does it. Now, when Jesus heard this, he marveled at him and turned and said to the crowd that was following him, I say to you, not even in all of Israel have I found such great faith. When those who had been sent returned to the house, they found the servant in good health. Now, why did this Gentile soldier receive such praise for his faith? Well, I believe it's because he was a man in and under authority, and he understood authority. And he understood that Jesus, as God incarnate, had authority over health, life, and even death, and that he didn't need signs and wonders. He didn't need to see anything. He just knew that Jesus simply had to say the word. Now, as Aaron mentioned, we're starting today a, uh, a short series, four weeks, on a topic of leadership in the home, but really what we're dealing with is the concept of authority. Not a popular topic for sermons these days. But what we want to do is explore how authority within the family uh, works itself out, 
how we relate to authority, how we exercise it, what happens when we disagree with authority within the family. And so in the coming weeks, we're going to talk about authority in context of parent and child and between spouses. Uh, We're also going to talk about the, the concept of appeal. It's going to be presented a little bit differently, as, as has been said. We're going to have a sermon which is, will be mercifully short. And then we're going to have a panel of, of uh, leaders who have agreed to come up and respond to the message and maybe give their insights. Uh, today, at least today, I intend to give them at least a hypo. A hypothetical is something that, you know where somebody makes something up and it usually presents a dilemma and uh, I would like them to respond to that at the end, so I'm sure they'll pay attention. Uh, first, we want to lay out today, though, uh, not necessarily those details, but the basics of authority uh, in, in brief fashion. We need to define our terms. So for our purposes today, authority means a specified jurisdiction or area of responsibility delegated by God, along with the power and the resources to carry out that responsibility. Now, we've got to recognize that authority is not the law, but it's the power to carry out the law. And we, in response to authority, uh, when we submit, honor the value of the one in authority and others whom that authority is attempting to protect. Another concept we need to make sure we understand is that of submission. And for our purposes, that's an attitude of reverence in which a person voluntarily places himself under God-given authority as an act of faith in the sovereignty of God. Attitude of reverence, voluntary placement under an authority in recognition of God's plan. Finally, obedience, okay? Maybe a little different definition than you've heard. The freedom to be creative under the protection of divinely appointed authority while carrying out their righteous wishes, including compliance with directives that we may not fully understand, okay? Well, first of all, let's try to figure out what does the Bible say briefly here? What are the realms of authority? I'm not going to go into detail about this, but uh, I'm sorry. What's the source of authority? That's the first point. The source of authority is a major issue in our culture, but for us today, uh, it's it's a one that's hard to answer without God, ultimately. But let me ask the question, have you ever heard the phrase or seen the bumper sticker, I love my country, but I fear my government? Okay, that was popular back in the uh, Clinton administration. It may come back. But what I want to do today is compare that with Romans 13, a passage that I'm sure a lot of you are familiar with, but uh, let's just go over the first few verses, starting in verse 1. Every person is to be in subjection to the governing authorities, for there's no authority except from God. And those that exist are established by God. 
Pretty straightforward. Therefore, whoever resists authority has opposed the ordinance of God, and they who have opposed will receive condemnation upon themselves. For rulers are not a cause of fear for good behavior, but for evil. Do you want to have no fear of authority? Well, then do what is good, and you will have praise from the same. For it is, authority is, a minister of God to you for good. But if you do what is evil, well, then be afraid. For it does not bear the sword for nothing. For it is a minister of God, an avenger who brings wrath on the one who practices evil. Therefore, it is necessary to be in subjection not only because of wrath, but also for conscience' sake. For because of this, you also pay taxes. For rulers are servants of God, devoting themselves to this very thing. Render to all what is due them, tax to whom tax, custom to whom custom, fear to whom fear, and honor to whom honor. So it seems to me like Paul would say, rather than fearing our authorities, we should instead be proactive in engaging them and doing what we can to listen to them and gain their respect and favor. All right, now some real basic stuff. You know, what are the realms of authority? Again, I'm not going to go into detail about this because I think this is pretty self-evident if you've read your Bible. Uh, one would be the family. Any disagreement on any of these, let me know. Another would be the church. Another would be civil government. And another that most people recognize would be what we would call employers. Back when I was in law school, they didn't call this employer-employee relationships. They called it master-servant relationships, basically, from the common law. And, and those would be the general categories that we would see authority being exercised. What are the most basic functions of authority? First uh, Peter 2 tells us, really simple, to encourage good and to discourage evil. Now, the more, in question, more important question is, why should we be under authority? And now, is it important at all beyond the obvious problem of chaos without authority? Well, Scripture has a fair amount to say about the importance of authority. The author of Hebrews said in, says in, uh, in uh, chapter 12, 5 through 14, he compares the way that God treats us to the way a father treats and disciplines his son. And then he says this, My son, do not disdain or lightly regard the discipline of the Lord, nor faint when you are reproved by him. For those whom the Lord loves, he disciplines and he scourges every son whom he receives. So just as earthly fathers exercise authority and discipline over sons for their good, so he does with us. And the author there in Hebrews goes on to say, uh, if we don't experience discipline from our fathers, we are not really true children. The King James puts it a little bit more bluntly if you want to read that. The author of Hebrews states that submission to authority and discipline is quite often unpleasant. Well, duh. But 
if we allow ourselves to learn from that discipline, we are, re- we are rewarded, according to this passage, with the peaceful fruit of righteousness. So that's one benefit, or several. In 1 Timothy 2, first five verses, Paul urges us to lip, lift up prayers for our authorities so that we may lead a tranquil and quiet life in godliness and dignity. And then in 1 Peter 2, verses 13 through 20, uh, Paul states that we should submit to all authorities, not just the ones we like, but even to the unreasonable ones. In verse 18, he says, Servants, be submissive to your masters with all respect, not only to those who are good and gentle, but also to those who are unreasonable. Why? Well, Peter goes on to explain that when we rebel against authority, and we're treated harshly for it, we're disciplined, and we bear it patiently, God doesn't give us any credit for that one. But if we obey and respond patiently to even unjust authority, the passage says, we will find favor with God. Now, a month ago, I was up here saying, there are times when we disobey authority. And we need to... uh, be careful about that distinction. Uh, the fact that an authority is unjust or even cruel when you consider the authority that the writers of these passages were under, those facts do not justify or provide an excuse for disobedience of that authority unless they ask you, command you to disobey God. And we learned last month that it's never right to do what is wrong, even in, uh, even under a human authority. But that does not mean we can say, well, you know, he's a lousy boss or a, a terrible spouse or a, an abusive parent or, a, uh, you know, a, a tyrannical president or, you know, a, 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 a overbearing church leader. So I don't have to listen or obey to anything. But, here's a real question. How do we respond to authority when the authority is unjust or cruel or maybe even just wrong? Or, as we were speaking about last month, when they ask us or command us to disobey our convictions, disobey the Lord? Well, My premise here is that if we can deal with the issue of an unjust authority and our response to that authority, then responding to a good and just and godly authority ought to be a cakewalk, okay? That's that's how this argument works, so that's why we're going to spend just a little bit of time here on this particular issue. Uh, If you look at Scripture, Daniel was in such a situation. He had been captured by a godless foreign authority taken, ripped out of his home, his family, and his country. And when he got there, he knew he was going to have his convictions challenged. Uh, But when he was commanded to violate his convictions as to diet, in Daniel 1, verse 8, it says, Daniel made up his mind that he would not defile himself with the king's choice of food or with wine, which he drank. Now, at this point, Daniel could have said, you know, I'm a godly person. I'm standing my ground. I'm not doing what you say. 
end. May have lost his head, and that'd be the end of the story. But Daniel had already demonstrated an attitude that brought him into favor with his immediate boss. So instead of that kind of response, he, according to the passage, sought permission from the overseer of the officials that he might not defile himself. You see, Daniel perceived something very important, that a command of an authority, even an unjust authority that we don't want to obey, is not necessarily motivated by evil. In this case, he figured out that the king did not order him to eat that food because he wanted to get him to violate his convictions. He did it because he wanted Daniel to be healthy and wise. And therefore, Daniel decided to work out a creative alternative to, uh, that would not violate his convictions, but yet would allow his authority to achieve their objective. And starting in verse 12, it says, Please test your servants, meaning Daniel and his friends, for ten days, and let us be given some vegetables to eat and water to drink. Then let our appearance be observed in your presence and the appearance of the youths who are eating the king's choice food, and deal with your servants according to what you see. So the overseer listened to them in this matter and tested them for ten days. At the end of the ten days, their appearance seemed better, and they were fatter than all the youths who had been eating the king's choice food. So the overseer continued to withhold their choice food and the wine they were to drink, and kept giving them vegetables. As for Daniel and his friends, God gave them knowledge and intelligence in every branch of literature and wisdom. Daniel even understood all kinds of visions and dreams. Then at the end of the days, which the king has specified for presenting them, the commander of the officials presented them before Nebuchadnezzar. The king talked with them, and out of them all, not one was found like Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. So they entered the king's personal service. As for every matter of wisdom and understanding about which the king consulted them, he found them ten times better than all the magicians and conjurers who were in all his realm. And Daniel, Daniel continued in this service until the first year of Cyrus the king. Okay? I believe it or not, as a heads up, that's the, basically the end of my message. So... I want to try now to um, just present a hypothetical for the men to consider as part of their discussion and response to this. Um, you know, hypotheticals serve a purpose. You know, they can be used for spin in terms of framing the question and that sort of thing. But sometimes they can make us think. And, and um, it's important that they have some challenge to them. Now, this, wasn't, isn't, this one isn't terribly challenging, but it, I think it may cause you to think. Uh, let's say you are in a church, and maybe you're a leader or whatever, and a high school senior that you led to the Lord a year ago comes to you with a dilemma. And right now he's on fire for God. And he's decided that he wants to go to Bible college. 
his unbelieving parents really appreciate the change that God has made in his life, but they confide in you that, you know, he still has uh, his old traits of selfishness and stubbornness. And what the parents say is that they want him to go to the local business college so that he's got something to fall back on if he fails in the ministry. So I'm going to have the gentleman come up and uh, give their insights, and we'll set up some chairs here. And, and uh, this is not a question and answer period. We probably need a mic. Thank you, Bill. And uh, uh, this is uh, an experiment, folks. We don't know that this will work. We may never do it again, but uh, we're going to see for those who volunteer to come uh, what kind of things they've got to say to you in response. Oh, boy, we got more than I thought. Oh, good. Oh, you, the fount of knowledge up here. <laughs> of knowledge. <laughs> you gave us your notes ahead of time, Kent, but you didn't give us the hypothetical. <laughs> uh oh, I got the mic in my hand. I'm in trouble. <laughs> uh, where do you want to go with this, Kent? What's uh hello everybody? <laughs> yeah. Just give opinion, give a thought on the situation of what the uh, student should do, basically, is what you're asking, and anything else related to that. Um, seems like I remember this ex hypothetical back from uh, a couple of uh, <laughs> uh, seminars uh, <laughs> many years ago or something. Um, yeah, I... The, and I've certainly been in this situation, too, I, I think. I, actually, as a young man myself, uh, some similar situations uh, like that. And now as a parent, uh, I guess uh, feeling a little bit with my own sons a little bit, too. Uh, so it's a very realistic situation. Uh, as we've gone through questions uh, uh, with our own sons, and it's interesting to be on the different foot now, even as a, um, as a parent who... who identifies with my son's Christian convictions and really want them to follow their Christian convictions and yet uh, looking at their gifts and abilities and trying to help them ascertain what might be best for them for the future. So I'm going to assume in this hypothetical that you've given that the parents really love the child and really want to do what is best for the child and, uh, but you said that they are not necessarily on the same wavelength spiritually. So, um, yeah, I would say that in a situation like that, it's just strictly on that situation, that, uh, um, you know, it's not a closed box, is it? It's not, a, it's not an either-or situation in many ways. And um, there's, um, since the parents see something in, in their son's life, and you put a hint in there that they were aware of some selfishness and things in his life, and, and we've probably all seen... Uh, Students or heard of students uh, that have gone to Bible college, gone to seminary, and maybe were not prepared for it. They didn't have any real life experience to back up what they were doing, and they um, 
graduated and they got their degree and they could show that they had a Bible college or a seminary degree, but they really were not equipped to go out and do ministry because they hadn't had any real life experience. And there were a lot, although they had maybe done very well academically, their their character was not ready for the responsibilities that they were going to be carrying as a as a minister of the gospel. So, um, yeah, uh, putting all that together, I would say that the son would be wise to listen to his parents' advice in that situation and uh, delay his Bible college and uh, not just put it off forever, um, but he could uh, he could delay it and uh, put it off. There is the whole process of appeal that we haven't quite gotten in here yet. If the son was really convinced that uh, it was something that he that God was wanting him to do, was, and his, if he disagreed with his parents' analysis of him, I suppose he could appeal to his parents and ask them to reconsider and really think through the advice that they were giving and 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 ask if um, if they could, you know. If, there wouldn't be some other room for in their suggestion for him of what they thought was best. But um, assuming that they held to that after his appeal, I would say he would be wise um, that he remain under his parents' authority and that he delay, again, delay his going to Bible college or seminary until he had gotten the training that his parents were suggesting, which I don't feel even if they were not on the same wavelength spiritually, was really ungodly advice. Uh, so many of the... In, in Jewish days, uh, there was a time when people were expected to have a trade besides being ministers. And I think it's a good idea. Even though they may not be on the same wavelength spiritually, their advice is very historical and very, uh, very much in keeping with the Judeo-Christian tradition. The only, uh, I agree, and uh, the only practical uh, little question that came to Teresa and I's mind when we heard the hypothetical is who's paying the bill? Uh, that would have significant impact on, uh, on that uh, discussion as well. I think that the point at which the, the young man is on his own, this kind of goes right back to what you said, but at some point, you're not under your mom and dad directly. You're not living in their house. You're living in your own house and paying your own way. And um, even at that, even at that point, you should you should listen to your parents. But um, but I think that's that is a big dynamic. I think it'd be very unwise for anybody in the church to to instruct even a promising young man who's still un, in, under his mother and father and mother's authority to. Um, to disregard that, I think that's even if they're unbelieving and he is a believer, I think that's wrong. So, I don't. I don't think that his uh, traits really come into as far when it comes to authority. I think his whether you said he was stubborn or he was selfish or something. I think that's almost kind of irrelevant when it comes to lines of authority and where they're at. That sort of that maybe is a second issue. I guess I just had a couple of things. You know, the, the thought that occurred to me was, well, one, I've known this guy for a year, and he's asking me to do something contrary to what his parents have known. How long have they known him? You know, so they have a little bit better background, probably a whole lot better background about his character than I do. And then secondly, I think uh, Larry brought this up, that 
you know, we, we're not in a box. And there may be things that would be very useful that he could get out of uh, a business course or, or uh, a degree or whatever that would help him in his ministry. And, and that would be the thing that I would think a parent would want to encourage. Uh, and then you look at the aspect of the witness to the parents. And, um, and if you, as a church person, tell... Uh, the, the child of another parent that he should disregard their advice then uh, and they're unbelievers you know what do you think they're going to how do you think they're going to respond but anyway there's there's lots of factors there and it's a hypo so I didn't say there was one right answer but it's, it's good to get these responses here I think we've still got some time so gentlemen any other comments on the topic in general I just have uh, some verses from Luke that I would share when, when Kent asked me to consider this last night at the ball field. Um, I, uh, thinking, through, thinking through authority, I always think through leadership and the kind of leaders that uh, we all ought to aspire to be. And, uh, would, uh, and the concept of servant leadership came to my mind. And so uh, if given the opportunity, I had this verse to read from Luke chapter 22, beginning with uh, with verse 25, and uh, it's from the from the scene in the Last Supper when there's been dispute over who may be the uh, the greatest. And Jesus said to them, "The kings of the Gentiles lord it over them, and those who exercise authority over them call themselves benefactors. But you are not to be like that. Instead, the greatest among you should be like the youngest, and the one who rules like the one who serves." For who is greater, the one who is at the table or the one who serves? Is it not the one who is at the table? But I am among you as one who serves. As I was just thinking through it, I was thinking of how um, the Truth Project we just recently went through in Sunday school and how uh, authority and submission we find at its root, we find in the Godhead itself. We find the Father and the Son. Uh, in 1 Corinthians 15, it talks about uh, how at the end of time, uh, Jesus will cause all authorities and powers to be submitted to himself, and then he will submit himself and all those things that he's already submitted to God the Father. And the, um, we, there is that aspect of submission that is right there in the Godhead itself, uh, we talk about natural law. We talk about the Ten Commandments. We talk about uh, the rights that are guaranteed to us in the in the um, uh, in the Ten Commandments: uh, the right to life, the right to wife, the right to property, the right to reputation. And yet, in the end, Jesus Himself suffered unjustly. And didn't hold on to those things that belonged to him, that were rightfully his, that he rightfully could have sought justice in receiving. And the reason he chose not to do that was for the greater reward that was offered to him. I've got 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 something I, I thought of as I was listening to your message was, and that goes right along with that, is David, when he was being pursued by Saul, he would never... He respected Saul's authority, even though if 
even though Saul by that time was an odious person and king and was totally treating David unjustly, he wouldn't he had opportunities to strike David uh, strike Saul and he wouldn't do it because he was waiting for God's timing and and to me that was an authority um he respected God's authority in placing Saul where he was until until God changed that and removed Saul. So I thought that was a a good uh, thought from the Lord.